Welcome to Champagne Problems. We are your hosts, Robbie Shaw and Patrick Balsley. Thank you for joining us on this journey as we explore our mental health, well-being, performance, and longevity, and how our relationships with alcohol can influence each. No shame, no labeling, no judgment, just curiosity. Welcome back, old and new listeners. Today, we've got Miles Adcox on the show. Miles is an entrepreneur, speaker, host, and coach, and is the owner and CEO of OnSite, an internationally known emotional wellness and lifestyle brand that delivers life-changing personal growth workshops, inspiring content, leadership retreats, and emotional treatment. Miles has devoted his life to living within these three concepts, empathy over action, love over agenda, and grace over advice. He is also known as one of the most plugged-in people on human condition that there is today. Let's go to Miles. Miles Adcox, welcome to Champagne Problems. Hey guys, welcome. Glad to be here. Awesome, awesome. Yeah. We're pumped to have you on, man. We've been following you for years. We know all about you. We're we're excited to learn more. We're we're really excited about all the work you do and and how perfectly aligned our missions are. Um, and so we're, 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 we're honored to have you on. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been looking forward to this for a while, Miles. I've, I've met you a couple of times in person at some conferences and always been inspired by the work that OnSite does and, and, and your mission. Sheila Maitland's a really good friend and mentor of mine. She's been working with you guys for a long time and I know, I know Dana pretty well. So, uh, I've been, been pumped to get this opportunity to talk with you for a little bit thanks guys so thanks for coming yeah, on yeah it's man. nice to see you again i'm honored to you guys are having me on i uh appreciate and value what you do but uh the energy of putting this stuff out here and reaching a lot more ears and eyes i know you've had some good success with your show so well done and and great mission behind it too so glad to be a part of it yeah thanks. Well- well, thank you. Thank you. Shout out to Jameson Monroe for the introduction, <laughs> if you recall. Oh, yeah, that's you right. Know, back in May, he sent that text out. <laughs> um, all right, so we like to start with a little rapid fire to get to know you, Miles. And the first question is, what was your first live music concert and where? Live music concert. It would have been Starwood Amphitheater, which is now closed, but it was a legendary kind of amphitheater, outdoor amphitheater with a big grass hill in Nashville. I guess it would have been one of Nashville's first concert, bigger concert venues. And it was the Beach Boys. Wow. Yeah. That's a first. Yeah. We've asked this question to a lot of people. That's the first Beach Boys we got. I have, I have uh, vague, vague memories of it. Um, I remember enough to, I I remember kind of the, the audience. I remember, I wasn't, you know, I was younger. I don't even remember the age, but I went with my parents and I just remember it being a really immersive, cool experience. And then years later, I was uh, working with Music Cares at the time. Uh, I say working with them, just collaborating, partnering with them, which we worked with them for years. And they set up at a lot of uh, festivals and award shows and different things. And I was on the circuit there for a few years with some friends helping them with the Grammys in different places. And there's a big music festival in Tennessee called Bonnaroo. And I was, oh yeah, I was at Bonnaroo with music. Actually, I wasn't with music cares that year. I think I was with another artist camp that I was working with. And I had a, a pass and I was side stage on the main stage there. And uh, I had to go to the restroom and I was like, I didn't know where to go. And I didn't want to walk all the way back to where we had come from. 
So I was just looking for anywhere I could go. And I've learned back there, just pretend like you belong and you can kind of go wherever you want. And so I, I started, <laughs> I started walking and I went in this little area where there were some trailers and I walked in one trailer to go to the restroom and it was the beach boys trailer. So there they were my first concert. Oh. It was Brian, all those guys. And I literally just oh. said, Hey guys, and went straight to the restroom, said hello to him on the way by, but it's a funny story. <laughs> wow. Oh, very cool. cool. What's your favorite sound? Some of these are weird. <laughs> Be happy we didn't ask you what your favorite smell was, because that was last week. I would say, oh, man, I, I, I've I got a high sensitivity to sound, and I love music. So, um, But I would, I guess I would have to say hoofbeats. Mm. Nothing like it. Mm -hmm. Horses at a full gallop, especially in a herd. Yeah. There's nothing like that sound. That's very cool. I've got a 13-year-old daughter who just leased out a horse about three months ago. So we are uh, in the throes of horses right now, which is a first for me. I didn't grow up with horses, but I am learning it very quickly. It's a blast. I... And it's very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next question. Who can make you laugh without saying anything? The first person that comes to a lot of people that, uh, but the first person that comes to mind would be a colleague of mine that we worked together for probably 18 years straight and she just left uh to to go chase a dream and another opportunity she's been gone for about a year but we're still very tight she obviously was a great friend and a colleague her name's lizzie uh, mclaughlin and she's people in the field if you listen to this you'll probably know who she is uh but she's uh she's fantastic and we've sat in a blue million meetings and she just kind of takes me right back to first grade every time and gives me whatever kind of side eye look or anything and we just lose it like we're on the back row church again <laughs> good, good kind of person to have around love it if someone warned us about you what would they say uh, if it was just like we're gonna meet i don't think i'd have a lot of big warnings. Um, but if it, let's just go with leadership cause that's an easier one. Cause I, I stalk down my leadership blind spots on the daily. I think if we were going to collaborate or partner or if someone was thinking about joining an organization that I had some influence with, I think people would say, uh, great guy, well-intended, um, it tends to take on too much occasionally and will, sometimes have a hard time being focused. What that turns into often is things can get a little bottlenecked at times. Um, also a bit of a recovering perfectionist. So, uh, loves to see just prioritizes quality with anything that I'm involved in to the point sometimes where it can become a hindrance to workflow. How's that? Wow. Sounds like sounds like Robbie's problems with me. <laughs> That's a great answer. Great answer. Um, all right. Last one here. If you could know the answer to any question, what would you ask? What a great question. I love this question. I wouldn't mind knowing my time and maybe the time of those I love the most. It's part of me that didn't want to know because I want to live that intentional all the time. But boy, have I walked with a lot of people as they faced a pretty, any kind of significant transition, especially a life in transition and the intention, the meaning and value that they pull into those moments is unreal. I always try to imitate it, but life gets to doing life and you forget about that. So I think if I knew if I've got one, 10, 30, 50, it could uh, keep me a little more rooted in living with more meaning and value. So I'd love to know how much time I've got. Mm. Might be scared of the roll, answer, though. Roll with that. Yeah. yeah. All right. 
Let's dive in. Miles, tell us a little bit about your early life and, and you know, not your whole life story, but some some highlights that, that perhaps influenced who you are today. Sure. Uh, well, got a, grew up in a little small town south of Nashville, a uh, little farming community. It's going to be about 65 miles south of Nashville. And I would say a small town left a big imprint on me. I knew everybody. Everybody knew me. Everybody knew everything about you. Uh, but there was something uh, hospitable and warm and nurturing about it. There wasn't a table that I never felt welcomed around in, in my early years. And we kind of, as a community, a little town called Hohenwald, Tennessee, we all kind of raised each other in a way. And that you know certainly didn't keep me out of trouble, but it kept people caring for me when I was in trouble. And you know, the, I couldn't, there was nothing I couldn't do without a, a football coach or someone in that community knowing about it and ultimately trying to support me in the right way. So I'd say my small town definitely imprinted me. And I grew up in a really uh, great family, uh, not a perfect family. You know, we did a lot of things really well. And of course, like every family I've had the opportunity to engage with, we, we missed it where we missed it. And, uh, but those that influenced a lot of what I do professionally these days is that one, my mother was uh, never met a stranger. She was super uh, hospitable, welcomed everyone all the time. And I find myself now loving the hospitality side of what we do as much as I do the mental health counseling or therapy side. I really, really love the way we welcome and warm people. And actually we use a, a, a term in uh, that I've written some articles about called healing hospitality. And I really believe the psychology and some of the principles of how you take care of guests has a lot to do with their healing process. So, and I got that from my mom. So that certainly influenced my career trajectory. And then my father uh, was a, a bit, you know, business guy, entrepreneur driven and really smart. I didn't get, unfortunately, that intellectual uh uh, business acumen, i.e. financial acumen. He's a really smart finance guy, but I got enough through his principles around integrity and honesty that it's led me, you know, as in leadership and in life as a foundational component. So that certainly was a big imprint. What we didn't do that well was we had kind of generations of not doing, valuing anything around emotions or feelings. I'd, I'd go as far as saying we probably just were illiterate when it came to emotions and that was kind of a cultural thing in the part of the world I grew up in, but it was really uh, significant in our family too. So but I was fortunate to have a lot of wonderful things, but that thing ended up creating, uh, at least with me, I think I've always been an uber sensitive guy. It, it created me looking external for a lot of my worth and value. And it wasn't that my, my family and my core system didn't provide a lot of that. They did. Uh, they showed up at gaining you know, a lot of the stuff. I, the people I support today, I got some things they didn't, and I'm grateful for it. But nonetheless, not knowing uh, or, or witnessing intimacy, feelings, all that stuff, I started searching for it. Where do I belong? Where do I matter? And and you guys know, I know you're we're all in adjacent with the spaces that we work in, that that has a shelf life and a runway for sure, that uh, if you start looking everywhere else for your worth and value, then it's going to get you into some pretty gnarly situations. And that's what it did. It, I kind of fit in with just about everybody I could to try to feel okay with who I was and who I was becoming. And that ran its course all the way up and through my early twenties. And, and then it started to get pretty painful. So I would, you know, I would run from that as much as I could develop a lot of gnarly conditions, codependency, which ended up manifesting into some depression, anxiety, and different things. And so 
ultimately, though, a lot of those things um, gifted me with this opportunity to find myself in a position of really needing uh, support and help. And it was through the bumpy road of trying to find the right people to come around me at the right time to lean into me so that I could open up and get back on track, get my feet back on the ground and get to know who I was instead of who the world was trying to tell me to become that let me know right away. I wanted to be part of the change process. I wanted to be part of joining people who were going through adverse circumstances and ideally help walk them back, back home to themselves. So that, uh, certainly was a big imprint on me and I know I'm jumping big segments, but the last segment I'll give you an Go back to you guys is uh, once I realized I wanted to be in this space, I quickly pivoted out of the space that I thought I was designed for, which was kind of the back end of the entertainment world, the sports world. I had some success there in the first few years out of grad school, but then boom, hard left into behavioral health treatment, psychology. Uh, and man, I, I uh, fell right into an opportunity uh, to work with this great young adult program that was treating addictions, eating disorders trauma. Well, we weren't treating trauma, but I ended up ushering that in, uh, about halfway through my, my stay there. And I worked there for a while and wound up getting an opportunity to run it and we doubled it in size. And, I, you know, along the journey, I, I was doing crisis interventions and some other things too, just getting credentialed and learning my way around the space. And one of the things I adored and have never forgotten about working in, i.e. the crisis space, I'd call more the primary treatment space where you see people on the back end of a pretty uh, you know, ideally painful set of life experiences that led them to want to get help with their mental health or their, you know, get sober, whatever it is. Um, I never forgot the feeling there that I had heard about my entire life. That was another thing. I grew up in a family that really valued faith and I heard about the concept of grace, my whole upbringing, but I never really felt it until I worked in residential treatment and I got to see it, feel it, touch it every day. And I never forgot that feeling. And all I could think about was why is it that this gut level core grace seems to only be available for those lucky enough to have some kind of big face plant moment in life. And then they get the right resources and get in the right care with people who love them back to their health. I thought, well, we need to make this available for the world. And so I got on fire about trying to figure out how you, uh, well, in the first, it was like, how do you get the whole world through 30 days of treatment? But then I thought that's not going to, that's not going to fly. Cause ultimately I never look at it as treatment. It's just more like working on ourselves. And, but I thought maybe we can get them through a week. And that ultimately led me all the way down the path to becoming part of the onsite legacy. Cause we, we started with those short time workshops, short term workshops and intensives. So that's what I've been doing for gosh, since 2007 or eight. And I just love it because I still, we still work with people motivated by crisis to get support and help, but there's a whole lot of people that are kind of the worried. Well, they're doing quite fine in life, but they just want to grow deeper relationships, grow their emotional intelligence and, and they'll come do work with us. And I love working with that population. So. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I know, I, well, I feel like I know a lot about onsite and about the kind of work that you guys do just through my relationships with some of the people that have, you know, worked with you guys or been through your, your intensives over the years. And, uh, but I, I kind of want to hear it from you. Um, I, can you give us kind of your understanding of the 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 value of emotional health and 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 what kind of puts that at the top of the hierarchy in terms of in terms of where you see that being 
a, a value for, for our society or culture as a whole? Like, why start there? Because, like, I hear your passion and I understand what you're saying. Like, how can we bottle this up and, and, and give this type of experience to, to the world? Um, why, why, why so much focus on the emotional health side or the, you know, cause we look at, you know, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, why, why so much attention on the emotional side? And, and if I could add to that <clears throat> for our listeners, let's give kind of a, a, a definition or, or, a, a, an explanation of what emotional health is uh, as well, which I'm sure would come naturally in that, but. Sure. Well, it's a very really thoughtful question on both of your I appreciate appreciate even the question to contemplate. Uh, we'll have to try to get clear on the answer or else I could really get, get on, on that soapbox. That's why you're here, man. <laughs> they've heard they've heard us yap plenty, trust me. Uh, <laughs> um if I were to define emotional health, I think I would I would just say maybe power, having power, understanding, strength, empathy around your mood, your feelings towards yourself and other people. So power, understanding, strength, and empathy around your mood, what I say, your feelings towards yourself and other people. And why is that important? I think countercultural to slow down, it requires presence. It requires us to slow down. And it just, it doesn't fit with a lot of the context of what we measure success by in today's culture and society. So, but ultimately it is the secret sauce to healing hearts. We see it every day, no matter what the struggle or what the medicator, when we slow you down and limit distractions and quiet your mind and regulate your nervous system, ultimately we elevate your emotional health. So it's, it's being grounded. I think it's engaging with what I would call our superpower, which I think is self-awareness which I think is a core context of emotional health. I think so one of the foundational principles is knowing myself enough that I can reset and respond in real time versus react in real time. So I see a lot of reacting now, you know, now, especially right now, because as a, as a, as a culture, we're in a bit of a polarized disposition and everybody's kind of in their corners a bit. And that happens oftentimes after significant traumatic uh, worldly events. So it's predictable, but it's hard to navigate. And I believe emotional wellness, emotional fitness, emotional health, uh, holds a bit of a key for us to understand ourselves a few layers in so that we can better empathize with the purpose person in front of us. And I think that simple recipe, i.e. when I become more aware of who I am, I can have more empathy on who I am. And really all that means is we all attract and we all, nobody escapes adversity. Life is designed for us to run into and bump into ourselves, which means we collect this baggage along the way. But often we're, we're not conditioned to be able to offload the stress we consume. So it compounds and that's what, that's trauma, that's psychological and emotional trauma. So we all walk around with that, which causes us not to really connect with the person in front of us. It, it, it supports us to connect through three layers of whatever bias lens we are living with that have had negative life experiences. I say that all the time with people that come into our ecosystem. I say, I hope I'm able to support you as someone in leadership. I'll do everything I can to earn your trust and respect and be able to sustain and maintain it. But just know up front, you're never going to look at me. I say you never, that's not the right frame. You're not going to be, you're not going to look at me through the lens of your most optimized leadership experience. 
you're going to look at me through the lens of your worst historical leadership experience because that's what our brains do. And so I already know the deck stacked against me a little bit and you're going to read my micro expressions and almost wait on me to let you down. And I think that's okay. I think we can work through that, especially with a little bit of emotional health and self-awareness on board. And I, I call what we do. I've got a, a podcast that's going to be launching in January and a new one. I, I'm excited about it. It's called human school. And I'm, I've got a book that's going to accompany that. And really I wrote that down on a napkin years ago when I was on my own journey and then getting into our space. And I really think that's all this whole journey is. It's how do I learn to be more humane to myself? And in turn, I can then be more humane to you. And I think that simple recipe creates a better humanity. So I think that's really emotional health wrapped up in a bow there. Is human school done? <clears throat> is it like ready to print? No, it's not done. I'm in the process, uh, probably halfway through the book process. If I could focus a little better, I think I'd have it done by now. I can't wait for that, man. Cause that's like, and I, I want to like take a little side note here. Um, it's also been a huge passion of mine. And I think one of the reasons why, you know, we, we got excited about doing this podcast. It's like, how can we bring the most kind of, um, the, the, how can we bring all this information to the public in a way that that's digestible and that it can kind of, cast the biggest net you know and i and i love that idea of human school and and kind of the basics of emotional health and self-awareness and being able to to have it be able to reach the masses and and even i think about this on the you know for middle schoolers and how do we get that stuff you know to the point where we can deliver this to a younger and younger generations and have them be able to move into life with this information already intact. One of the first things you shared was was part of your journey and how, you know, you were looking externally for validation and those kinds of things. And, and, and you know, whether it's a guest on here, it's our own experiences, or it's just about anybody who's open out there that I speak to has some level of a journey, some sort of intervention that's occurred in their life that has created the desire for change and then the work it takes to change, to process, to grow. Um, you know, often we look at that as, or maybe publicly it's looked at, that's looked at as a problem. Or, yeah, let's just say a problem. When I don't know many people that go through life that mature emotionally, you know, mental, you know, well-being-wise, and all, and, and all of those spaces who haven't gone through those kinds of processes. So is it a problem or, 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 or is it something that we just need to do all the time anyway as humans? Is that a, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean I, it, like, do we need a, you know, some people need a higher level. Some people need a treatment, you know, space and a setting, but we all need to learn how to get through this life you know, it's a tough world. Emotions don't, managing our emotions healthily don't necessarily come naturally. There's not sure there's a question in there, but with, let's talk. I appreciate the, the way you're thinking about that. And I, I don't, I agree. I don't know that I would necessarily describe it as a problem, but more of an opportunity because we both know that's one of the things that would give people like us a bit of optimism 
with what we've all been up against in the last few years from 2020 on is having set front row for thousands and thousands and thousands of people going through adverse life circumstances. We know given the right circumstances, tools, time that on the other side of that, there's a great opportunity there to come out of it better than we came into it. And I think that exists too for humanity is I think this could cycle back in our favor and we could all come back out a little bit more heartfelt and connected. I'm, I'm hoping, um, it in the middle, it's a hard, hard to, but I think it's more of an opportunity. I do think we're naturally wired and designed, however, to manage, express, identify, clarify our emotions because it happens so naturally in our developmental years, especially as kids and babies. I mean, they're just, just unapologetic about their, what they're feeling. Of course, they're not fully developed. So you could argue that, you know, their, their brain's not, but I think they get more culturally conditioned to keep it together, not to cry, to pull it back in. And so I think it's, I used to say the same thing about, um, our work at onsite because we have an experiential model. And if you were to really get in there without context and have no idea what we're doing, it'd be a little weird. It'd be like, what, what is this? What are y'all, what are you doing? You know, therapy would be considered a little weird uh, to people if they've never had any context, but I don't think it. And, and I used to say that I used to say to people, I said, I know what we do here. feels a little abnormal and different from the way people interact in the world. Now I think it, it's, it's opposite. The last probably seven, eight years I've been saying what we do here is probably normal and what they do in culture is not so normal because you don't have to walk around armored up and pretending like you got everything together and we do get to get real and you get to, you know, you know all those things. So I, I do think there's a natural element that we have to work back towards nature, nurture side of the way we're designed and, and try to wash out some of that culturally conditioning, conditioning. But I do think, you know, I'm a parent to two young kids, a six and a four year old, and I certainly try everything I can not to prevent them from bumping into obstacles and falling and climbing and taking risks. And cause I fully subscribe to what you're saying. There's no other way to learn that. But the one thing I'll say that I'll push back, I'm not pushing back on you, but I'm pushing back on an old theory that I heard a long time ago. And I know we've all heard it that have worked in and around our space, which is that if people aren't ready to get help until they hit a bottom. And we used to say that all the time, well, they hadn't hit their bottom yet. They hadn't hit their bottom yet. And I, I don't, I don't subscribe to that. I don't think it's that black and white. I've seen people are all levels of the journey wake up to the idea that they can live better, more productive lives. And here's the other side of that coin is I've seen too many people die at their bottom and I'm not willing to sit around and wait and accept that. And I think intervention can happen at any time. And so, yeah, do I think people should have uh, naturally bump into problems in order to grow and learn? Yes. But if we can prevent loss, unnecessary loss by giving people tools uh, all along the journey. I, I would love to do that because I think there's an, a certain necessary level of pain in humanity that is probably required for change. But I also think compound unchecked un pain becomes unnecessary and ends up, uh, you know, cutting life too short in a lot of circumstances, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I don't did, know if I answered your question. You exactly. I, I think we have a lot of opportunity now and I'm, I'm really hopeful it really just over the last few years, and I don't know if it's because of the stuff that I'm engaged in, but I, I, I feel like it's it's us as a whole. Um, we're having more opportunities to inspire each other into this stuff too. And that's why I love that idea of human school and having kind of a, a, a baseline understanding of like developmental psychology and emotional health that we can all agree upon 
and a framework that we can work from. And if we could have that, we, we could, it would make things a lot clearer of, you know, what are the things that are getting in the way of that? Um, and and I, I, I think we'd be able to meet people, you know, way before they reach that point or that pain threshold that usually throws them into some type of intervention or, or into a place like treatment or even seeking any kind of help. Um, and that's why, you know, another reason why I've, I've appreciated what Onsite does and, and kind of how it brings leaders into the, those positions to where they can do their own work um, and inspire people that they lead to do theirs too. So, um, yeah, thanks for that answer. That was great. I, I want to bring up pain because um, I know that's, that's, a, that's a big part of this stuff, and, and you're probably familiar with the book Comfort Crisis. Um, that 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 theory rings so true to me. You know, I, I have a history of addiction and and dep- and all the stuff. And you know, a lot of it, obviously, when I when I break it down and map it out, I can attribute it to various things, and it gets super complex. But a big part of it is my pain tolerance, physically and emotionally. Um, I can't take it. I don't like it. <laughs> It's uncomfortable. It hurts. It's sad. It's angry. You know, all those things, man. I, I, that's where I, and and I know I'm not alone, you know, hence the book, um, or hence the theory, you know, we're, we, none of us like it, you know, it's tough. It hurts. And I, but I, I also know that the answer is in that pain and the freedom is through that pain. I would love to hear you speak a little bit about that. Yeah, definitely. I like what everything you're sharing. I think I align with it. I wrote down the name of the book. I love the the title. I don't know that I've read the book. I don't, oh, man. I don't think You'll I have. You'll love it. So, so give me a high level of the, th- the Yeah, just, just our, our American society lending itself to convenience and comfort and, and us evolving mm-hmm. in a way now that we, we're, we're just, we don't, we... <laughs> We run from any discomfort. Perpetual avoidance. Right, exactly. Like everything. Yeah, we definitely, the the modern world is not built for anything other than comfort and convenience, I would say. Like I uh, have run into some challenges with autoimmune issues in the last two, three years. I just kind of out of nowhere and I've always felt like I've been a pretty healthy guy uh, and have stayed really active and never been overweight or anything like that. But I've never paid much attention to what I, to what I ate up until really the last few years, you know, a little bit enough that I wasn't eating sugar all day, but I grew up where you just, you know, it's fried. And if it's, (laughs) if it's good sugar and it's fried, it's good. And, and I, when I began to pursue a Western approach to what the heck's going on with my body. I feel fatigued and tired all the time. Zero answers. Top specialist in the world, zero answers. But then when I dug in and I realized that uh, a lot of what I'm experiencing and I got finally were able, able to land a diagnosis and figure out my way out. And of course, initially it was like, take this drug, take this, take this, take this, take this. And, and every bit of that made me worse until I started to completely change what I was eating and began to eat really clean, which led me down the path of exploring what's in our food. Never asked that question, yeah. never thought to just assume that what's in our yeah. food is okay. Mm. And my goodness, Horrific. 80% of what we it's eat has got food. poison in it. And, <laughs> and it, 
and I started picking this up because I started going to to we we work a lot with the British uh, community. I love our our Brits. We probably have 10, 15 a month come over uh, to onsite for experiences. And I've just gotten to know that culture pretty well because I'll go over there a couple times a year and see our alumni or speak or something. And I started going years ago and I would be on the, maybe 10, 15 years ago and be on the search for a snack and you couldn't find it. And I thought, well, it's because it's made in America. And it's no, because it's illegal. Because <laughs> right, it's As poison. It it's got poison in it. And so I was like, shoot, is this really real? That a lot of foods that we serve in America, they won't serve in Europe. And yep, absolutely. So I say that to say, um, I didn't know what I didn't know. And when I started to know it, my behavior started to change because I was motivated by pain. And now this is a long way for me to get to the metaphor I was going to use to answer your question. Um, I, um, I've started slowing down and I realized I in a modern world, I can't go get that food. I have to then prepare it. It's like, I don't know how to cook. I never had to cook. I did what, you know, my mom was amazing. She three meals a day. She cooked for me. I don't know how to cook, but I'm starting to learn how to cook. And then I learned the stuff I was cooking and I was getting a little better. And then I was like, shoot, I'm, I'm learning how to cook. And then I realized what I was cooking in was toxic. I was using all those pan. And so I'm really into cast iron now. Uh, like of about four or five months, I'm a cast iron geek and I've been collecting it, looking at it and cleaning it and learning how to cook with it. And the metaphor for it is so cool for me. Like every day I wake up and I don't just throw my pan on the temperature I want to cook on and throw bacon in the pan and start to, to cook and where it fries immediately. I'm like, nope, you got to give it about 20 minutes to warm up. If you want to cook at the right temperature, you got to ease into it. You got to take your time and then you have to immediately nurture and care for the pro the, what you're using afterwards. Now, thankfully it doesn't come with all the toxins and everything else we cook with, but you can't rush it. It's not convenient, but I've learned it is comfortable to me. Because it kind of sets my mind, makes me wake up a little bit earlier and it sets my mind on the right pace and it counters against that pressure, that push, that rush that we live in today that I believe is a catalyst for a whole lot of the challenges we're navigating. So I'm excited to read that comfort crisis book. So I know I didn't have a lot of educated thought to put in that other than I really align with that. I think we, I think we over nurture or um, over protect, um, one another to and insulate each other from, you know, challenge and pain. I'm seeing a lot of that in today's culture. And I just think it's hard to navigate, know what to say. You know, I, I, I I'm trying to teach my son before he really gets involved into sports, the value of losing and the value of winning instead of just the value of participating, which is what most of the leagues are teaching them now. <laughs> Because I think just there's a I think there's a lot there, and I know that could be controversial, but it it is what it is. I do think we over insulate, and then also we lean towards um, convenience, and I do believe it's a bit of a crisis. I gave a big metaphor of food, but you could take any lane, and we're just not wired to grow, change, and heal with that on board. We're just wired to move really fast and avoid our pain, like you said. Let's talk about on site, man. <laughs> how, how did? Uh, you know, I guess you said you, you started back in 2007. I know that OnSite's been around longer than that. Can you give us a little a little history and then tell us how you got involved and how you got to where you are and the, kind of the evolution of of the programming, too, if you want to take some time? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for asking about that. It, OnSite is this beautiful legacy that really predates me. Uh, all, it goes all the way back to the 70s. It was a, a woman named Sharon Weichstrader Cruz, and she 
really was an amazing pioneer in our space, especially as a woman in the seventies, there were no women that were really breaking the glass ceiling and getting any theories, thought change modalities out in, you know, it was kind of a guys club back then. And she did, she pushed really hard. As a matter of fact, her story is wonderful. And I'll give you a 30 second version of it. And she, she had an alcoholic father and, uh, he ended up suiciding and she found him. And so she had a tremendous amount of pain on board and didn't know how to get help for that pain. And she wanted to understand not just the disease of alcoholism. She wanted to understand why she was in so much pain and had been both pre and post her father's loss. And so she literally went door to door to uh, treatment centers. And at that time, treatment centers were all men. It was all men's treatment. And you, if you're a woman, you went to the psych ward, you know? And so she went door to door to men's treatment centers, seeing if she could get treatment. And so she would literally knock on the door and, and they'd get turned away because she wasn't an alcoholic and there wasn't anywhere to go. And so finally she knocked on the door, I think it was in center city, Minnesota, and it was like a 12 step men's, uh, alcohol treatment program. She knocked on the door and this is her words. I, I hope I'm getting them right. They may not be exactly right. I, I was just with her last weekend celebrating her 85th birthday out in, in uh, Colorado. And, uh, she's, she opened the door and the guy took one look at her and said, your dad was an alcoholic. And she just fell into tears and he invited her in and she did 30 days of treatment as a woman, non-alcoholic in an all men's uh, rehab. And I just think that's beautiful. And from that, she realized we are leaving a big part of the picture out. We're neglecting the system, the family, everyone else that's been in this trauma cycle and this pain. And we need resources to be able to support them. So she started with uh, building resources in the original Johnson Institute, uh, which was that original intervention, uh, kind of where intervention came from. And, 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 and then built the concept of on-site workshops, you know, I think it was on-site workshops, training and consulting initially, and she would take workshops to other programs and places. And then she would find remote, remote locations to do family of origin work. And she was one of the founding, she was the founding chairwoman of ACOA, the adult children of alcoholics movement. She was one of a handful of women to kind of, uh, make the last run of getting codependency in the DSM, which it didn't end up getting in there, but they kind of coined the definition of codependency back then her and some of the other women that were pondering at the time and just did some amazing things and ultimately found herself starting what became a legacy that I would carry the torch forward. And she handed it off to a couple that had it for about 10 years. And I acquired, acquired it in 2007, 2008, somewhere around there. And then I was at the time, I didn't even know this history. I just knew, um, onsite was this retreat center and that's what I was after. I really wanted a retreat center to try in. I was trying to find that line between the self-development world, which was the Tony Robbins and that whole era. They were, you know, it was going nuts at that time too. And the treatment world. And I thought there's something in the middle of that, that, you know, cause they get the worried. Well, they prevent probably a whole lot of people because they get them into their passion and we get the crisis in. And I was like, what about the middle? How do you get the middle? And and I really, I wrote a business plan out uh, and, and wanted to develop something like that. Cause I felt like that was what I was really struggling with. And, and ultimately it led me to onsite and the uh, Ted and Margie who have, we're kind of the second generation after um, Sharon, we started this long engagement of conversation. It took about a year of kind of, uh, you know, in, uh, interviewing one another to see if I could be a good fit for the succession of onsite. And at the time I, didn't, I wasn't really interested in the business. It, it was a good legacy business and they had an amazing clinical product, but the business wasn't that great, you know, cause I'd come from the treatment industry and, and I, and I was like, I just really want a retreat center. 
I've got an idea. And, but the more I learned, the more I realized that a lot of what they were doing really needed a, to be modernized, but B, it really needed to be here. It didn't need to go away. It was a beautiful legacy. And I was like, I don't need to reinvent the wheel. I just need to carry this one forward. And thankfully I've been able to do that. And of course we have innovated, grown and changed and built some new lines of service, but we still have that anchor into our history. That's just a beautiful thing. And what we do is we've got a campus about 45 minutes west of Nashville on 300 acres. I'm a big horse guy. You heard that, I think, in the beginning about the hoofbeat comment on sound. And so we have, we're on a horse ranch and got about a hundred bed retreat center and people come in for a series of workshops or intensives anywhere from three days up to a week. And, and we also have a small kind of boutique residential program just because I couldn't stay away from it forever. I just, I really love that work too, but our, our primary there is trauma, anxiety, depression. It's called Milestones. We share a campus there. and We've got a second uh, location out in San Diego County. So that's a, just a brief version about the history of on-site wow. and on-site. Golly, we got to, we might have to uh, trek over there. It's not too far from us. Yeah. I was supposed to go last in the, I guess, last fall when you guys had the professional, do the professionals week. Um, I got to get over there and though. Sounds incredible. And then I saw recently the the Urban Wellness Center. Is that what it's called? That's what I called it that day. My <laughs> team was like, well, we haven't heard that frame yet. You're out. Surprise, surprise. You got the cart in front of the horse or a horse in front of the cart yeah. again or however that goes. Um, I, uh, that's really what it is. Uh, we don't call it that per se. It's just been kind of our, our Nashville on-site office. Per, and, and we've got a lot of really cool services we're providing there. But uh, I... We're going to be shifting the name of it soon to fit it a little better, but we have primarily worked remotely, you know, out on property, which I, I prefer, but we learned there were a lot of people due to what we talked about earlier, that comfort crisis, that the pace that modern, that are never going to take a week off and turn a phone in and come do personal work. But we, we can make the door a little wider for people that um, might not take that step yet, but they're willing to come to something local and be able to get home at night. It works a lot for younger mothers too, and different things that have, I say mothers that have young children that, uh, it's hard to be away from them. So we're doing a lot of our programming now in, uh, in Nashville, which is really fun. We've had that place open for a few months. You'll definitely have to come see that. If you guys come into town, I'd love to show you both. And you mentioned earlier about that professionals program. We're going to do a couple of those these next year, but I started, I guess it was back I'm terrible with timelines. I can't remember the date, but anyway, I know I did about 15 of them. So it would have been fairly early on 2009, probably something like that when we started our first one. But I found myself at this interesting intersection where I had, had gotten established as a young guy in our field and I was on fire with passion. I loved it. And I wasn't taking very good care of myself on the emotional side. I, I was just you know, all, all systems go. I was single. I didn't have a lot to lose at home. And I found myself, um, honestly dealing with some of the same stuff I dealt with that got me into this space to begin with. I was running through relationships. I was depressed. I was, we call it burnout, but if you really dig underneath it, there was a lot in my life that I just wasn't proud to report on at the time. And, and I found myself working I just work more. I just do more, you know, that's, that was my stress management coping strategy at the time was just, just add more to it. <laughs> and I still do that. some. um, but <laughs> I kept, been there. catch it a lot more, but I, I found myself sleeping on the couch of the place I was running, uh, and, and working 15, 18 hours a day, all in the name of helping people. And I'm like, wow, something's not 
right with this picture. And so I began to ask some of my mentors, some of the guys that had run the big treatment centers. And these are the guys that you could call on any day and ask them about something on the balance sheet or a difficult HR issue. And they would answer it in their sleep. You know, they've been doing this for 30, 40 years. They've stood on the stages and won all the awards and had the recognition, which they deserve. But if you were to say, man, how do you do this and have some sense of life? The crickets. And I was like, oh, shoot. And because a lot of those guys, when I started, I never looked under the hood. I never looked at their life. I was just looking at their career path. And if you looked at their life, they're like estranged from their adult kids on their fifth marriage, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wow. So I found myself as a young guy in our field thinking I've got a choice here. I can either stand on stages and get recognition in 20, 30 years, or I can have a life, but it doesn't appear there's a lot of evidence to support that you can do both because our field tends to take a lot from us. And I thought that's it. That's a shitty circumstance. I don't love that. And I thought we got to change and do something about that. So it was, I circled up a couple of those mentors and the first one we did, this was way back before Betty Ford and Hazelden were one, they were in separate entities and back it was Betty was in her prime and a good friend of mine, Mike Netherton was running there was the COO at that time. And he and I and a couple other guys got together and said, we, why don't we just circle up for a few days and talk about the real stuff that's happening in our hearts as leaders, the stuff we're scared of, the stuff we're afraid is going to be found out because I learned I wasn't alone. A lot of people struggled with that. And so we, we did, we went out to Palm Springs and it was kind of, the first one was kind of like three days of golf cigars. And we, you know, <laughs> talked about not ready yet. <laughs> we didn't go too deep. We didn't go too deep. But there was one, <laughs> it was one session, like a two hour session where you know, I think it was one guy, it was a 15, 20 of us. And he said, I can't believe I'm telling this to a bunch of industry professionals because I rely on you. We have all these dual relationships. We refer to each other. I rely on your trust. He said, I'm having an affair with my secretary. And it was amazing that n- none of us in that room felt any judgment everybody felt relief because somebody finally laid the gauntlet down and said we're going to be freaking honest if we're going to do this right and we all started getting honest and we all started healing together and then i acquired onsite and then we held our first men's leadership retreat at onsite and there was 18 of us and all ceos we came together for four days left the golf clubs at home and we just did work we did personal work together and we thought this is crazy nope this how is this going to work you know we're literally pouring our stuff out. It, 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 it contradicts every management theory and leadership training I've ever had, which is, you know, leave your personal life at home. But man, it set us on fire and it just, it re-tethered me to, it's like, I don't have to choose. I can do this for an entire career if I want to, and I can have one of the best lives I've ever had to be proud of. And, but then we started a second, a third, a fourth, and then a women's uh, group and, and a whole bunch of those. We ended up having like 400 leaders coming every, every year in 15, 20 person groups in the industry. And then it got to where I couldn't sustain it because it was literally onsite. It was turning into the treatment professionals leadership, <laughs> the leadership training, and, which, <laughs> yep. which was already a lost leader to start with. I, my accountants were screaming at me. They were like, you don't run a nonprofit here, buddy. Um, We do have a foundation that supported some of that, but we still had to keep a business going alongside it. So I ended up having to sunset those and try to put them back out into the field and say, can they be self-sustaining? You know, can you go run these autonomously, be peer led? I can try to, and some of them have, you know, a good chunk of them have continued to meet once a year, but a lot of them trailed off. I don't think I had the best succession or execution plan. So I'm excited to tell you guys, and nobody's heard it yet is, um, I've got, uh, some peeps, a couple of buddies that I've worked with for a really long time in the field that are going to be joining on site really soon. 
that I'm really, uh, nice. and, and both of them have been in those leadership groups and spent a decade there and both would say they changed our life as leaders and as people. And are you open to bringing them back? And, and us and right now we're, we're in a better position. You know, we've got more capacity, bigger, you know, we've added on in the last few years and I was like, why not? So we're, we're looking at 24, mm -hmm. we need to it. bring these leadership groups back to on site. So I'd love for you guys to, if you're interested, I think you dig them. Maybe I'll be a part of one of them. I'll be there for sure. Oh yeah. yeah. Right up our alley. Wow. My personal curiosity is really around your passion in the music space. Uh, I can understand growing up near at Nashville, uh, that that might come somewhat naturally, but I also know that you're involved with musicians on call. Uh, I dug into that recently and, and find that to be really, really incredible. What a, wow, what a valuable service. Um, but I would also love to hear, well, first, where does your passion for music come from? Second, let's talk a little bit about music uh, as therapy and, and why that is so effective. Mm, thanks for asking that question. That's thoughtful. I appreciate you doing that research. And Yeah, music. So growing it in a, in a system where we didn't express emotion regularly, but yet we all are emotional beings, there are other outlets that will either invite or provoke that and or condense it and restrict it. And music for me was one of the invitations. As a, as a teenager, I found myself privately in my room and I would cry to music or I would laugh to music. And it just, it woke up another part of my senses, almost scared me because I was like, are you supposed to be feeling these feelings? These are the ones I think you're supposed to run from. But I, <laughs> but there was something about it. I felt this, this freedom and it woke up parts of my senses. And so I, I feel like when I got into my, our space and then when I start, I was one of the first guys to ever do interventions in Nashville. There was just nobody doing them. Now Nashville's, you know, growing and thriving. There's all kinds of people doing them. And because I had worked adjacent to and close to the entertainment industry, my social, social circle overlapped with it. And it turns out the creative space could use some interventions from time to time. And so I, I wound up kind of being the guy for the music industry in Nashville initially in Nashville, you know, at that time, was considered kind of one dimensional. Everybody thought country music, Nashville. And, but it's really, it's home to both the Christian and country music recording indus um, industries, but now it's multi-genre. It's, it's one of the three big pinnacles in, in um, the, the, the States anyway, with uh, LA and New York and Nashville that have major recording. I, I hope I'm not offending my friends in Austin and other places because I know music's big there too. Uh, and you guys got other great things going on, but I'm talking about like the, this, the infrastructure to support major recording labels, all that stuff is there. And, uh, I, it was just natural that I started working in and around that space. And I just kind of stayed with it. I continued to develop good relationships. And I, I realized one day, I was like, why are you doing this? Because there, trust me, there's a lot easier populations of people to specialize in than, than music and film and public people in general come with all kinds of nuanced challenges. And I'm like, I'm working twice as hard as I could be. And there's plenty of people to help in a lot of other industries. And I really felt, you know, if I go back to my bedroom as a teenager, when I found myself crying into music, somebody created that, somebody recorded it, somebody performed it, and then it got in my ears and began to teach me that feelings are okay. And, and I, I just felt I owed a debt of service to keep creators in the game doing what they're doing. And, and now I watch this on the daily where I get to sit behind the curtain. Nobody knows I've engaged with, you know, the majority of people I've engaged with, but I get to see them in one night 
influence more people in a sold out stadium than I might in my entire career. And they're the ones that are shaping the culture for my kids, not my local pastor or their school teacher. It's mm -hmm. Taylor Swift or whoever mm -hmm. it, you name an artist. Mm -hmm. And if I can help influence those folks spiritually and emotionally and keep their feet on the ground so that what they do say, they say with intention, when they do see somebody who's looking for some kind of hope and meaning from them, that they're able to meet that with compassion and love and grace. And one of my proudest, um, accomplishments is, is when it's, I, I love working with new acts and thankfully now Nashville and other genres have really adopted me as somewhat part of the music industry. I got introduced that way, not, you know, maybe three years ago backstage at an, a music event. And I was with an artist and with kind of a legend in the space. He run a bunch of labels and everyone was going around and, Hey, who are you introducing? And, and somebody, he looked at me and said, you, you're, you must be in the music industry. And then the artist to my left said, he is, he's, his name's miles. He's in the music industry. He's on the mental health side. And I thought, wow. Oh, that's so cool. We've come a long way. The fact that they've been adopted because I can, made it. I remember in the early days, I'd be backstage <laughs> at the CMAs or the Grammys or somewhere. And everybody would see me and kind of feel awkward and kind of want to run. They're like, is he here to intervene? Is he, what is he doing? <laughs> what is he doing here? Um, but no, and now, now it's become part of the framework. And that's the big motivation. You know, that's why Debbie Carroll joined us, who, who kind of run Music Cares for 24 years. And I couldn't believe she said yes. I had this wild idea. I was like, what if we formalize this and start a full-on entertainment division that really specializes in working with public professions? It's not to uh, pedestal or to treat them any different than we would a normal client. It's just, let's attract people like me and you who spend a lot of time on tour buses, who know the ecosystem, who've been in studios and know the film world, who've been in locker rooms and know the sports world so that we don't have to sit with a client and they have to spend the first week explaining their profession to us because we know it. And, and what if we could create this nuanced service that supports them? And we've had it going now for about 14 months and man, it's just thriving. It's, we've got kind of a concierge approach to that community and, and I guess my favorite part, the part I was proud of is, is, um, is we get to, it's one of those things you get to quietly witness a ripple that you could never measure. And it's not that I'm proud of all the people that will serve it on site and, and the other places I've been involved with, but being able to serve people who have influence and have some sense of responsibility to do good with it and know that you might've had a little small part in, in, in what that influence looks like for the next generation really fills me up. So that's, that's the, that's why I do that. Big impact. Mm. That's for sure. Beautiful. Couple more questions. Um, and, and these are kind of our last two that are kind of power questions that we'd like to ask everybody to leave us with a couple tidbits of wisdom from your own personal experience. But if, if you could give our listeners a couple, like your top two or three things that you do in daily practice to, maintain your emotional well-being what would they be i'm a i'm a prayer guy and i know prayer can be loaded depending on your introduction to it uh, we work with people of faith of a lot of different denominations and we work with people who uh, don't have any kind of spiritual belief system and we work with people who are deconstructing their faith because they've been wounded by it and everything in between and i like that i like being able to, to do that so I, I just i say that up front but prayer for me is it's almost more than a religious practice. It's, it's a, it's a grounding mechanism. It connects me with something bigger than I am. 
and I start every morning with it before my feet hit the floor. And when my head hits the pillow, uh, and some days it's thoughtful and I feel like I've got good thoughts and good words. And some days it's a couple words and that's about all I can muster up. Um, I think it was, uh, my buddy Earl Hightower years ago, uh, he said he 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 was talking about prayer, and he said, "Man, my prayer at one time when I was so angry at God, um, he said I would wake up in the morning and I'd say whatever, and he said at night I'd say enough. <laughs> he said two two word prayer twice a day, and I thought you know what that's pretty amazing. But he's still praying. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> so 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 prayer is a big one. Um, my form of meditation is being is is movement and being outside. I. Part of the gifting of an, a really uh, distracted, um, you know, I, I don't call it a disorder. I, it has limited me significantly at times being attention distracted is that we have the ability often to see patterns and to get in rhythm with nature and to notice things that uh, it's, it's a, it's ability to hyper-focus on certain things and almost zoom in. Now, often you can zoom in on the sap coming out of a tree and spend three hours on it. And everybody's wondering what happened to miles. But, um, but it, <laughs> it, it, but it, it, it does really fill me up. So if I'm outside, if I'm moving, if I'm walking once a day, I've got to be outside. I'm outside more than I'm inside, no doubt, but I'm out there as much as I can. That's another thing I try to do every day. Got it. Got it. All right. Miles Adcox, why do you care so much? It's hard to, to put words to the why I spend a lot of time on the how and, and, and the what, but if I really, I guess, strip it back, it's today I had a day. It was a Monday. It was just a, everything that kind of could have gone wrong, went wrong today. It was almost, it finally got to the point where it was kind of comical. Uh, started out with losing a phone, uh, which turned into a flat tire, uh, which turned into being locked out of something, which turned into me recording out here in the middle of nowhere at a buddy's farm that I'm locked out of the house and did it on the <laughs> patio, which is why our video is probably oh a little spotty. God. And I feel bad. I feel, I feel bad because I know you guys have a big show and I was even going to offer up front. I was like, if the connection doesn't work, I'll re-record, but um, hopefully it did. But I, uh, um, I just kept, it's just one thing after the other, after the other, after the other, after the other. And I was really wrapped around the axle. I had kind of gotten my buzzard goggles on and which is kind of, if you see buzzards, they'll fly over thousands of acres of green grass and beautiful flowers. And they find one dead rotting carcass and they just circle it and can't see anything else. And I, I was there a little bit and it was this funny thing that happened because I got caught on I-40, which goes right through Nashville. Uh, oh, I forgot to mention that ran out of gas. <laughs> Hadn't done that in 20 years, really. Um, and ran out of gas and I didn't feel comfortable sitting on the shoulder of the road uh, on an interstate because I've got kids. I don't think of myself as indestructible anymore. And I was like, I got to get off the highway. And so I, I hoof it. I start walking and I'm, I'm on an intake call. You guys know what that is. I've never given that up because I still love those when they come through. Um, but I was, I was on an intake call, walking up by 40, eating a sandwich in one hand, a smoothie <laughs> in the other. I've got, and I'm just, just walking down the interstate and and I'm thinking, boy, what in the world are we doing here? So I get all, I walk off an exit. I get down to a gas station. I buy a two gallon thing of gas, fill it up. By that time, Ashley, who directs my office, had come pick me up kindly. We head back to my car. We, we pull off. Um, it's one of those gas cans that has all these safety yeah. things. You can't even use it. I don't know if you can try to, a new, today's, <laughs> you can't get them open. What in the world are they doing? 
And so I'm just fiddling with that. And I'm trying to get, cause these cars are flying by us. And I'm like, you gotta be kidding. I can't even get, I've got two gallons of gas, can't get it out of the, the hose. So, um, I, I unscrewed it a little bit and then it spilled all over my hands. And, uh, and I had to go to a meeting and I was like, this is perfect. This is always too good to be true. And so I, I pulled it back on and I put it in the back of Ashley's car. And I was like, I put napkins down and I was like, the worst thing, worst smell you can ever try to get out of vehicles is gas. And I said, like, I really hope this doesn't. And sure enough, two drips on her, on her carpet back there. So like, it's got, got to keep going. And she, we had this moment where I, I got out of her car and into mine. And I said, Ashley, I'm so sorry. I know I'll, I'll pay for your car to get detailed. And she said, why? And I was like, well, it's got this smell in it. And she said, I like the smell of gas. And it was like, it just flipped it for me. And I thought, I am hyper-focused on everything that's going wrong today. Now there was a lot that went wrong today, but I am missing that that I was that my car broke down right beside Tennessee fall leaves. It was the most beautiful yellow and orange tree you've ever seen. Everything's changing right now. And it's gorgeous. And I got to take a walk in the middle of the day outside. I don't get to do that a lot on busy stack scheduled days. And so she has this unique way. It's one of the reasons I love working with her is of just seeing the good. And I, I, I feel like when I can see the good, I have a responsibility to share it with other people. And I think that's caring is to, to pass along the value of humanity, to pass along the moments and the meaning and, and constantly just hold a mirror up and reflect people that, that good is within you. You know, we get to see people on their worst days when they feel like they, life couldn't get any worse and they couldn't mess it up any worse. And we get to show them their best. I mean, if you ever get a taste of that, it's almost like, how could you not care? It's the, it's, it's, it's oxygen for me. I just, I love it. I do think, uh, fortunately, I think God designed me in a way to have an empathetic disposition towards humanity, but I also think anybody that practices some sense of service towards others, it's hard not to catch the caring bug. And I certainly have it. So wow. beautiful. Good stuff there. If we, we already knew that you were a good man, Miles, but the fact that you didn't reschedule after that kind of day, yeah. you're a good man. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you. Thank you. Yeah, guys. Thank y'all. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the host and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. Visit Patrick Balsley's practice, saunacounseling.com, Robbie Shaw's practice, eventiderecovery.com, or visit theblanchardinstitute.com. <laughs>